63 days. That's how many days I have left in True North. So don't woo me. <laughs> it's not a woo. So one of the things I wanted to do, I've always wanted to do this, and I, and I haven't. I haven't yet, but I, I would like to do it now if you'll indulge me. I've always wanted to take a picture from up here down there to look at you guys. Uh, so can I do that? Can I take a picture? All right, so I'm going to do wide angle here. It's not going to be beautiful, but all right. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take a picture. Okay, ready? One, two, three. What was that? All right, I think, okay, that's good enough. That's good enough. Thank you very much. Reason 4,757,682.5. That reason is the, the number of reasons that Apple is better than Android <laughs> is a particular feature called Live Photo. I, I just took a live photo of you, and now I can, I, I could, I probably hear myself talking, and I was press it here, like, oh, look at, there's this kid, someone threw something at me. It's not just a video. Uh, the, the beauty about this is that you can see the context in which the photo is taken, and it largely increases your ability to get, like, the perfect shot, right? And sometimes they're, they're funny, and they're amazing, but live photo is the best thing, and one of the reasons why Android has no chance against Apple ever, because things like this are just what take it from excellent to just magical. The Old Testament has a live photo experience. In fact, one of the things that you need to understand as a Christian who lives in the New Testament is that the Old Testament is there in order to help us understand the context where in which God sends his son, Jesus Christ. The whole thing is a live photo. Now you can't press it and it's longer than one and a half seconds, but all of the things that you read in the Old Testament are there to help you understand and make sense of the New Testament. The Old Testament gives you snapshots of Jesus, little glimpses. And in fact, the snapshots in some ways feel like a 1.2 megapixel camera. They're fuzzy, they're, the edges aren't quite defined, but the Old Testament is really there to help you understand that the image is pointing to a future fulfillment of that person, a future fulfillment of that passage. In the book of Hebrews, we're going to embark on a chapter tonight, chapter 9, that's going to point to some of those pictures and say, look at those pictures that you saw in the Old Testament. Don't those look a lot like Jesus Christ? And of course, your answer is supposed to be, well, I guess so it does. It does make sense that God was using those pictures to point to the fulfillment of those pictures in Jesus Christ. And so what we need to understand tonight is that God gave us pictures, specifically in the tabernacle, that help us to understand several things about God. And in fact, the idea for tonight is to help us understand that those pictures should give us a clarity about God that most people don't have today. In fact, if I could go even further, most people get a million things wrong about God. They could see the fuzzy pictures, but like modern day editors, they'll take the picture, they'll distort it, they'll move things around, they'll touch it up, or they'll erase things altogether to make the picture look perfect in their eyes. But in God's eyes, you've ruined the picture because you've taken the image of Jesus Christ and you've marred it to be unrecognizable. So when we look at this chapter, I need to show you a few pictures that God has put up in his proverbial house that he wants you to see. When you go to someone's house, you'll notice that all along their walls, you see family photos, that they have animals and they really love their animals. They'll have a big animal photo. Here's Fluffy hanging out, playing with the ball. You'll see all the things that matter to the family. In fact, one of the coolest things about going to some of your houses is seeing the family photos. Seeing little Josiah when he was just a little tyke. Seeing little, oh, I mean, <laughs> that was the most recent house I went to. But you get the idea. You get to see what's important to a family. And of course, the family photos tell you a lot about what matters to the family. To go even further, if you look at your own camera roll tonight, I bet if I were to just randomly pick one of your camera rolls and be like, hey, just show me what's on your phone. I'd be able to get a sense of things that matter to you. It's not a flawless science, of course, but it gives me a sense of what matters to you. We're going to see what matters to God in the photos that he shows us tonight. And we're going to see what we should do with those photos as they point, not to themselves, but to the actual people. If you go to the Yovachin's house and you see a photo of Josiah, it doesn't make sense to admire the photo when Josiah is standing next to you. To look and say, oh man, you look so good right there. Your hair is just on point. Your eyes are just sparkly. When Josiah stands right next to you the, the whole time, they'd rather enjoy the person as opposed to the picture. The person of Jesus Christ is who we're supposed to enjoy as we look at these old photos. The world religions that you live in today, the ones that you're exposed to, they take the photo of God and they change it. They edit it. They Photoshop it. 
And many of the religions that you and I engage with today are, are really uh, competing for that territory of defining who God is. And when I think about religion, I think I, I should make clear to you that I'm not just talking about people that worship a different God. Uh, I, I think of even uh, atheists and agnostics and secularists as having a religion of their own, a defined set of beliefs that govern their worldview. We need to look at Hebrews chapter 9 to understand the pictures that God has given us and how we can best understand God. And he's given us a defined set of criteria. God is not flexible when it comes to how we understand him. In fact, he's very inflexible. And he's very adamant that you don't change his photo. He wants you to be clear about that. Before we get there, I want to quickly reorient you. In fact, I know some of you guys probably forgot what the book of Hebrews is even about at this point. The book of Hebrews is by a guy who's there to preach to us. This is actually a sermon. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. It's a sermon by someone delivered to a group of uh, Jewish people who are now Christians, and they're saying, we're struggling because we want to go back to the old way things were. We liked it before. We liked it when there were sacrifices. We liked it when there was a high priest that we could interact with. We liked the old system. And this group of people is in danger of departing from the faith. And so this whole letter, preaching letter, is written to them. And if you remember, one of the first things that we covered in this series is Jesus is the greatest of all time. He's the one that God says, this is uh, the, the one who is the physical incarnate representation of all that I am. He is the highest. He is the greatest. He is the one who is savior and mediator. Uh, the whole first chapter is about celebrating that reality. When you get to chapter uh, three through five, give or take, uh, you introduce this concept of Jesus being our high priest. Now that high priest language goes back to the Old Testament. He was the pastor of Israel and that guy was in charge of mediating between God and man. And in the first five chapters, you have this development of Jesus being the greatest of all time and specifically as it relates to him being high priest. Well, that's important because for the next five chapters, we're going to continue talking about Jesus having a superior sacrifice. He's a superior high priest who offers a superior sacrifice and that superior sacrifice takes place in a superior location in heaven with God. The last four chapters of the book of Hebrews, which we'll get to, um, not next week. Well, yeah, we'll start next week anyway. But the last four chapters of Hebrews essentially is this, endure. Because Jesus is superior than Moses, than the angels, than Abraham, because Jesus offers a better sacrifice than anything this Old Testament system could offer, you should therefore endure in your faith because there's no other options. There's only one guy to go to. There's only one way. Therefore, stay, endure. Don't depart from your faith. Continue on. Now, this is a really high-level overview of, of, the, of the book that we're reading. And you'll notice tonight, we're on chapter 9, and so we're still talking about Jesus offering a superior sacrifice. Let's go there together now. In Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to look at the first 10 verses together and understand how God presents himself, the photos that God has given us to understand who he is. We have a lot of turf to cover tonight, so please make sure your Bible's ready. Let's start working together, starting at chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenants had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, I need to pause for a second here and help remind you, last week in chapter 8, the last thing we read in chapter 8 is this. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. It's passed away. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant's in view here. Now, talking about the first covenant, verse 1. That had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent, verse 2, was prepared. The first section in which there were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Sometimes we call that the holy of holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which in the in the in the Ark of the Covenant, there was a golden urn that held the manna that God provided in the wilderness and Aaron's staff that budded, that demonstrated that Aaron was the, the true leader, the true high priest. And on, on top of that, there was also the tablets of the covenant. That was the Ten Commandments. And above it, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Well, why is he bringing it up then? He wants you to understand that picture number one here, the old covenant had a tent of meeting called the tabernacle. And that tabernacle was meant to, I didn't have that up there, did I? That tabernacle was meant to showcase something specifically about God. Now, I got to go to the tabernacle last week. 
not the real one. The real one's nowhere to be found. I got to go to a representation of the tabernacle, which some of you guys are going to go with me, uh, and not next week, but the week after. You're going to go see this with me. And we're going to look at the tabernacle in person. The, the tabernacle was meant to be a physical representation of how people were to approach God. And so the preacher is saying, when you think about God, you need to think about the tabernacle as it used to be. The tabernacle, you'll notice, is surrounded on all sides. It's gated up. It's a gated community of sorts where only certain people have access. The covering around the tabernacle is all the same color. It's all the same color cloth, except for one spot. The one spot that has a different color, I don't know if you can see on the screen here, is the entrance, the entrance curtain. You'll notice once you get inside the entrance curtain, now you're in the grounds of the tabernacle, but you are still not yet in the presence of God. The holy place is the first section. And only Levites could go into the holy place. And in the holy place, there are several pieces of furniture that were to represent how God was to be understood by his people. And of course, you remember that the most holy place is a place that only one person could enter who was also a Levite. And that was the most, uh, the, the, the high priest. The lesson here is that all this information that you're looking at is meant to convey something to you about God. It's a picture that if you were to study it, you would say, huh, God is inaccessible. Access to God is restricted. There is a sense in which not anybody could simply approach God. He was not available to every Israelite. He was only available to a few, and those few had a very specific way of approaching God that he would, he would, uh, he would allow them to, to talk to him, interact with him. Okay, so that's the concept so far. Let's continue on in this passage here. Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. Again, the tabernacle tells you something. Here's what you should know. The tabernacle says you can't access God. Regular folk like you and I cannot access God. There is a level of holiness and set-apartness that only certain people could approach. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It was only outward. They would be symbolically purified by ashes and by water. When you go into the tabernacle grounds, there's a bronze laver there. It's like a bronze bathtub. And the, the part of the job was to go in the bronze laver and to purify yourself. It was holy water that was to be poured on your person before you entered into the tent of meeting. Now, did that really do anything for the person who was worshiping? Well, of course not. It's just outward stuff. You're just, you know, this and that. You're not really dealing with the inner person, which is his point here. Those things can't perfect the conscience. But, verse 10, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until, and that's a key word there, until the time of reformation. This was all meant to lead you to say to the future, okay, something's going to happen here. It's going to deal with this issue. Here's what I want you to see, though. In all of these things, God could have said, look, I'm done with Israel. You're sinners, you're fallen, you're broken. I don't want to touch you. But I want you to see something specific about this. And it's simply this. God desires relationship with you. How do we know that? Well, the very fact of their tabernacle tells us that God is making attempts to draw near to you sinful humanity. Now, granted, we're talking about Israel right now, but the whole idea here is God is providing footsteps, so to speak, for how you can get into his house. Again, it's not for everybody, but God is trying to make it clear. There is access to him, but it's limited. And the reason it's that way is because he wants a relationship with his people. Now, it's a tough one. And in fact, uh, one of the things that, I don't know if it's even still part of the Facebook thing, but that's that, that whole relationship standard, it's complicated. God's relationship with Israel was complicated. It wasn't as straightforward as you and I would hope. But the idea here is that God was making provision for you and I, regular people, to interact with him by the means of sacrifice, through the means of purification. And it was all an image. It was all a shadow. It was all foretelling the future. It was a preview to the movie. God wants a relationship with you. <coughs> but that relationship is not the kind of thing that you and I can simply define for ourselves. Some of you guys are in a relationship. 
a guy-girl relationship, and hopefully it's not complicated. Hopefully it's pretty clear, but he knows. For the most part, no one has to say in a relationship, hey, um, now that we're dating, I'd prefer that you don't date anybody else. That's usually pretty clear. You know, when you're one, th- you know, one person, one, that, that's how you generally work it. And that's a good thing. But if boyfriend says to girlfriend, hey, I'd like to date a lot of different girls, if that's okay with you. I mean, you're still my boo mostly, but there's other boo out there. Uh, I'd like to have lots of boo in, and if that's okay with you, we can all, we can all be happy about that. Girls are not going to, you're probably not going to be okay with that, right, ladies? No. Okay, most of you said no. <laughs> I would assume that means you're representing everyone. No. And that makes sense. In a similar way, today's religious landscape are offering lots of different ways where you can interact with God. There's different approaches to Him, different understandings of Him. But the problem with them is that they take the image of God and they mar it. They change it. That's why the first point I have for you here is that you need to approach God on His terms. There isn't a, uh, an alternative that God says, you know what, I did send my son, and I do like the fact that he died on the cross and rose from the grave. But, you know, if someone's really into Buddhism, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to talk about that and make them feel bad for going that direction. If someone's a pantheist, they believe that everything is God. If you're a new ager and you believe that you can interact with spirits in the spiritual realm, I don't want to, you know, harsh that mellow. Let's just all be, let's all be friends. I'm happy about that. No, it doesn't work. If we're going to ever interact with God, we must approach God on his terms. Young men, if you're ever going to date a young gal, likely it's going to be on her terms. She's not going to be okay with you saying, I want to date Susie and Nancy and Carol. And those are really old names. Let's try different names. <laughs> uh, Kayla and... Oh, I was going to call your name. I'll just stop right there. My point is that there's only one way to God. And the very fact of the temple made that clear. The, the tabernacle, rather. Tabernacle means tent. The very fact of the tent makes that clear. In fact, if you see the tent, again, if you look at the the tent itself, you'll notice, again, as I pointed out, there's only one entrance. It's guarded on all sides. So if you're an Israelite and you're like, oh, I'm going to go through on the south side and just kind of sneak under the tent. That doesn't work. You can't do that. There's only one entrance. And as someone once said, there's no back door to the tabernacle. You can't kind of secretly sneak into the Holy of Holies. There's only one entrance. And I don't know if you can actually see on this photo here. If you look closely, there's actually a back door there. <laughs> not accurate. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And world religions, the different religion, religious offerings are, are like that. They're backdoor access to God. In fact, let me just say this. If you're ever thinking about dabbling in new age or mystical things, let me caution you. I think those are real things. If you start pulling out a Ouija board, I know there's scientific explanations for how it can actually work. And if you start interacting with witchcraft or spells, I think you're dealing with real things. Now, granted, they're real demons, but they're real spiritual experiences. There's, and I'm sure if we had time, I could tell you about a few of the weird things that I experienced in my life, B.C., uh, but I don't want you to do those things, and I don't want to make it even sound remotely attractive. Whenever you think about life apart from Christ, approaching God through a different means, another religion, another mystical approach, you're opening yourself up to a reality that is very dangerous and a reality that ultimately can undermine everything that you've learned, and it can hurt you. It's a back door to spiritual experiences, and it's a bad experience. It's a false one. There's no back doors in the tabernacle. There's no back doors to experience in relationship with God. I talk about religions, and one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is, is also, uh, it's not just religions, capital R, you know, like Judaism, Islam, uh, Buddhism, Taoism. It's more than that. It's people like, like this guy right here, who's a philosopher. He's a modern-day philosopher. He wrote this book recently called Reality Plus. And the whole idea behind this book is that there are, there, there's a possibility that you and I live in a simulation, and you guys have heard, you know, Elon Musk wax eloquent about it. Like, oh, we could possibly, it's, it's possible, right? And I thought, oh, that's funny. That's funny. You know, you're too smart for your own good, Elon. Go get, go, go stick with their spaceships. <laughs> but there are people that are taking this seriously. There are people that are honestly saying, well, what if this is a simulation? This guy says, there's a few quotes here that I'm pulling off of a, an interview I heard him give. And this, is, this isn't in the book. I didn't read the book. I don't know what the book says. But this is what he says in an inter- interview. He says, how probable is it that we live in a simulation? Well, there's, a, there's about a 25% chance we live in a simulation. Now, if you're asking, well, how do you calculate that? He, 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 he's quick. He says, hey, we shouldn't take the percentage all that seriously. But we should take the possibility seriously. What possible? That we, that we are simulations. 
he goes on to say, the problem that most of us experience is more existential. Like if you think about, oh, we live in a simulation, suddenly you're, the crisis that most of us will experience is, well, then what does this even mean? Why am I even living? And that seems like a pretty natural response. To that, he says, well, that's really not all that different from God, right? Just turn God into a simulator. How much worse is that? Isn't it kind of the same thing? And one of the things that he talks about is, well, what if, you know, I don't even know how this works, but if there's some 17-year-old on a distant universe, galaxy, some other existence that is simulating us, is that really all that different than us believing in a God? Well, I think so, doctor. I, I do think there's a big difference. But he postulates this as a serious consideration. He goes on. He's got one more thing. He says, you know, well, this seems like, okay, this takes away meaning from your life. He says, well, what gives, what gives our life meaning is the relationships we have, the communities that we're a part of, and the experiences that we have. That's what gives life meaning. And of course, if you're thinking, young person, I've taught you this before. If you're thinking that, one of your questions should be, your responses should be, according to who? Why does that, if we're a simulation, why do you get to say, Mr. Chalmers, that relationships give life meaning? Like, according to who? If we're all just ones and zeros, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter. No matter what you might say or suggest, it doesn't matter because there's no authority. So all this to say, look, I bring this up because I want you, again, to think about this. You're approaching God on his terms. It's fun for us to be like, hey, well, what if we're just a computer program and we're, some, we're in some kid's uh, computer who's in his basement, lives at his mom's home? That's, isn't that amazingly fun? No, but it's certainly something that's creative. I'll give you that point. I'll give you points for that humanity, but you lose points for perpetuating a false religion, which is essentially what this is. Think about this. This guy is trying to define reality for you. He's trying to tell you this is how the world is. Now, really, young person, who gets to define how the world is? God does. At the end of the day, if you want to potentially believe in the simulation theory about our existence, you're going to have to say, all right, I'm going to put all of my stock into that theory, and that's going to make decisions for you for the rest of your life. If you really thought you were a simulation, you're going to not do things that the Bible says you should do because you don't believe the Bible to have any relevancy to your life. There's no God. There's no meaning. There's just ones and zeros. You must approach God on his terms. Humanity likes ideas like this. We're, we're attracted to this stuff because we like conceiving of a reality apart from God. We've been doing this since the very beginning. When Adam and Eve took the fruit. They're doing it in violation of God's reality. God said, don't do this. It's not good for you. They said, well, maybe it is good for us. Let's take the fruit anyway and see what it feels like. We've always been doing, this is human nature on display. But my point here is that as you think about the tabernacle, you think about the pictures that point to Jesus, you must understand that while God wants relationship with us, it's not on your own terms. God wants relationship according to a specific aspect of his character. And that aspect is holiness. God demands holiness from you. As we think about approaching him on his terms, that term is you must be holy. You must be perfect. You must be righteous. You must be pure as he is pure. You can't bring defilement into his presence, which poses an, an existential problem for us because none of us have this. And yet this is the very reality of who God is and what, he's, what he explains about himself. He's holy. It's the one thing that, that is repeated about God. God is holy, holy, holy. There's no other word, no other description of God that's repeated in the same way. God is holy, holy, holy. Now that's why chapter 9 verse 1 goes on this way. It says, now even in the first covenant, there was regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, a set-apartness, a, a, a consecration that demonstrated God is not like you. God is separate from you. God is distinct from you. And God is wholly other than you. That's a problem. In Leviticus chapter 19, God told the children of Israel, tell all the kids of Israel, tell all the kids, all the sons, all the daughters, you shall be holy because I am holy. And you'll notice that the book that I'm referring to here is Leviticus. The book of Leviticus was all of the Levitical law that told them how to be ritually pure before God. Well, that's the Old Testament, Pastor Rod. Correction, that's also in the New Testament. That's repeated by the Apostle Peter. 
He says, look, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of the way that you used to live your life. Don't think about simulation theory. Understand, let God define that for you. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And he's quoting Leviticus there. And the idea behind this young person is that God desires a relationship with you, but the problem is that God demands holiness from you in order for you to approach him. You can't conceive it by yourself. You have to let him define that. Hence the tabernacle. That was the image. The tabernacle says God is holy. He's other. He desires a relationship, but not on your terms, on his terms. God desires a relationship and he demands holiness. Of course, if you're feeling what I'm feeling, you might say, okay, well, what do we do with that then? Who can actually be pure before the Lord? I'm glad you asked. Let's continue on here. Hebrews 9, 11 through 22. I'm going to put this one, uh, we're going to read this in our Bibles. Too much text to put on the screen. So please read along with me. Hebrews 9, 11 through 22. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that, are, that, that have come, it's a reference to the new, the new covenant, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places. He didn't do this by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. When Jesus died on the cross for sin, it was a one-time act not meant to be repeated over and over again because he didn't need to do that. It was once and for all, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Notice the distinction here. Purification of the flesh versus purification of the conscience. Purification of the flesh happened through the sacrificial system. Purification of the conscience happened through the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 15, therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And he's going to explain how that happened. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And now he's going to say, look, essentially what's happening here, Jesus inaugurates a new covenant by spilling blood. Pause for a second. Have any of you accidentally run over an animal yet? Okay, I pray that never happens. But if you do, it's not pretty because you hear it and you, I mean, the splatter, you just, it's not a pretty thing. And you and I never see that. We never get to see an animal sacrificed. I mean, unless you go to like a slaughterhouse, but none of us see this. We are so desensitized to this kind of context because we don't have to look at that stuff. All of our food comes like in shrink wrap. It's cleaned and you might rinse it off a little before you cook it. We never get to see animals slaughtered and sacrificed which is why I want to show you this video. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I thought about it, though. I did. I saw, oh, man, that would be so helpful. Maybe on your own with your parents to you go look at that. But here's the idea. Blood. The slaughtering, the slitting of the, the throat of the animal, that gets just graphic and, and explicit in like the worst way. But now we're going to say, look, everything that God does in terms of wills and covenants is made official through the shedding of blood. And that official shedding of blood happened through Christ, which is what inaugurates the new covenant. Verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Okay, there's, there you go. Will and blood, covenant and blood. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. That's why there has to be an animal sacrifice. Something has to die. Something has to shed blood. Why? Because the life is in the blood. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been, declared by Moses, uh, had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." Back to the temple. The animal is slaughtered. The animal is placed. Uh, so you have, you have a cow there or an ox. They're slaughtering tables. The brazen altar is where they might burn an offering. But then uh, you'll notice that, okay, so they, they have the bronze and laver there. They wash their hands and then they go through the tabernacle tent and then they sprinkle. The high priest sprinkles that blood. Think about how graphic that is. Taking blood and then just sprinkling it on the Ark of the Covenant. 
I don't know the last time you had enough blood in your hand to sprinkle it at somebody, but that sounds like a pretty gross experience. This is what the high priest was called to do. Take the blood, sprinkle it. The blood represented the life of the one who died. Now in this, you should begin to see, oh, I, I see, I think a, a pattern here. Something has to die because of my sin. And you're starting to catch on. Something has to die because of your sin. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you're starting to see, oh, I think I see a fuzzy image of Christ, you're on the right track. In fact, when you read your Old Testament, I want you to read your Old Testament in view of both the New Testament and Christ. That's my second point, actually. Read your Old Testament in view of the New Testament and Christ. You must read your Old Testament, read it with Christ in mind and what is said in the New Testament. So I said I didn't have a video, and I, and I, I don't. Not about a real slaughter. But I do have a, a walkthrough of sorts that would be helpful as I show you what this is to look like. Christianity is, is unique from other religions. And we've been talking about Christianity tonight uh, in contrast to world religions. Christianity is unique for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that it's true. But secondarily, Christianity wrestles with the harshest realities of life. Christianity deals with evil. Christianity has a category for cancer, for rape, for destruction of, of nature, you know, there's hurricanes or tornadoes. Christianity has a way of dealing with those things that other religions don't hold a candle to. But on top of that, you get to see how God conceives of dealing with that sin, with that evil. And this is one, uh, one way that this happens. Oh, good. Straight time. Okay, so this is the inside. This is one of those, you know, life-size walkthroughs of the tabernacle. And there's the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, no back door, overshadowed by the cherubim. Those are two angels. The wings are pointing toward one another. The top of the Ark of the Covenant made of pure gold. The bottom had, uh, was made of acacia wood. Priest puts on his linen garments. He couldn't be dressed any way he wanted. He had to wear clothing that represented purity. His sash and his turban, all very similar. There was a way that was prescribed by God for him to approach. And there's the bronze and la uh, laver. He washes himself. He goes through the colorful entrance with his two goats. This is a depiction of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16. He takes his two goats. There's lots that are cast. What does this actually look like? We don't know, but they're showing the lots. The lots are being cast for which goat will be slaughtered and which goat will be sent into the wilderness. That's where you get the term or the concept of scapegoat. There's a scapegoat that's sent into the wilderness and then another goat that is going to be killed. One of, the, uh, one of the things that the high priest had to do was to slaughter an ox on behalf of his sins and on behalf of the people for the sins that were committed unintentionally. He would then take that blood, making his way into the, uh, you'll notice he's in the, the Holy of Holies there. Uh, he's also bringing in incense. That's also part of the, the ritual. This is all in Leviticus 16. He had to uh, burn incense before the Lord in the Holy of Holies. And so not only do you have this blood ritual, but you have this Holy of Holies being filled with this smoke, this aromatic smoke that smelled probably really good. And then he sprinkles it, but he's not done. He goes back, oh, time to slit the throat of that guy. They, they, they cut him, they bleed him out. He takes that same blood, sprinkles it on the top and the sides of the Ark of the Covenant. He does this once a year for Israel. And of course, the scapegoat, he sends it out. A, a sin is being expiated. The sin is being placed on the goat. They send him out into the wilderness, probably to be eaten by some wild animal. And that's to showcase, look, sin needs to be dealt with. It needs to be removed from you. And that's where the goat goes. He takes the blood. Um, I don't know what he's doing with this guy here. He's tying him up. A nice bow. Okay, he's placing the sin. Okay, this is the scapegoat. Placing the sins on the goat, and then he's going to be sent off away. And that more or less covers it. You guys can watch this whole video yourselves in the thing, but I wanted to give you a sense of what that looked like. They don't actually uh, slit the throat of the thing, uh, but it would have been helpful for you to see that because it's graphic, it's gruesome, and it's not pretty to enjoy, but that's what our sin requires. When we look at those things, it's so obvious to us as New Testament Christians, when we see this, oh, I see how Christ fits that. Pop quiz. John the Baptist said, Behold the blank of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lamb, not the goat. The Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 is goats. The Passover, that refers to lambs. The Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world corresponds to the Exodus 12, the Passover that Israel was to highlight 
Israel was to do this in, in response to God. God was going to judge Egypt. And then he tells the people, look, you know, we'll come back to that. Let me, let me just answer this question, actually. Let's, let's start with this. Is the Old Testament even still relevant? Well, of course, the answer for us is yes. One of the reasons that you should believe that is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture breathed out by God. Old Testament, which is what's in view here in this passage, the Old Testament is a God-inspired document. And furthermore, it's profitable. It has value for us to teach us, has value for us to correct us, to change us, has value to, change, uh, to train us in righteousness. And all these things, now the Old Testament and the New Testament work together to make us equipped and complete to do every good work. I like that word complete. It refers to the fact that there is a totality to the Bible that all together makes us whole Christians. Whole Bible, whole Christian. You need all the pieces of this in order to comprehend all that God is doing in your life and through the work of Jesus Christ. With that being the case, then, how should we read the Old Testament? Because there's some problems, right? Jesus, as we know, fulfilled the law. So then why do we have the Old Testament? How does it work for us? Well, let me show you this little graph here that I created. You'll notice that there's three parties in view here. Israel, Christ, and us as, as Christians. The law in the Old Testament should be understood in at least three ways. Okay, you ready for this? The first way is the moral law. There are laws in the Old Testament that are moral in nature. They're ethical distinctions. When it comes to Israel, those moral laws were binding. Do not lie to your neighbor. Do not covet. Do not steal. That was a binding law for Israel because obviously Israel, uh, it was written to them. Well, Christ comes in under the new covenant and guess what? He fulfills the law. He does, it every, he does all of it. All the laws that apply to Israel, Jesus completes and he fulfills them. Well, what does that mean for the Christian then? Does that mean that the moral law is not binding for us? Au contraire, the moral law is binding. And the reason we know that is because Christ said under the new covenant that he came to fulfill the law, but not to abolish it. The law in many cases is still in effect, which is one reason why we still say, look, lying is wrong. Well, that's under the old covenant. Well, it's also under the new covenant. The new covenant affirms the fact that lying is still wrong. Romans 6.15 also affirms this. It says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means, Paul says. We ought to obey the law. The clarification here is that your obedience to the law is not in any way going to contribute to your salvation. Jesus completed it all. Well, if there's moral law, there's also ceremonial law. This is where you have the Day of Atonement and the Passover and the feasts and the festivals. Ceremonial law that God had established for Israel. Israel, it was binding. They had to do the Feast of Booze. They had to do the, the Day of Atonement. Jesus comes in. He fulfills those by his very person. He's a sacrificial lamb. He's the lamb who takes, the, takes away the sin of the world. For you then, Christian, are you bound by the ceremonial law to do the Day of Atonement? Are you bound by ceremonial law to not shave the sides of your head, men, because you're not supposed to do that? Well, of course not. And yet, people today will make, this, make, make, make a mistake of this all the time. Well, Christians, you guys just cherry-pick the things that you like and the things that you don't like. Yeah, you'll be, you'll be quick to bash a homosexual, but when it comes to eating bats or wearing clothes of mixed cloth, you're okay with that. What's your issue, Christian? And we're going to say, well, look, you don't, you don't understand the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. And that law is understood in three different ways. We have the moral law, and then we have the ceremonial law. When it comes to homosexual behavior or any kind of uh, sexual immorality, we would say that falls under the moral category that is affirmed and repeated in the New Testament. When it comes to ceremonial law, like the fact that you guys wear polyester and blended, blended cottons and wools and all that, like that doesn't apply to us anymore. That did apply to Israel under the ceremonial law. That was a means of purification and cleansing. But for us today, we're not bound by that because Christ fulfilled the law, and it was not repeated under the new covenant. There is one more category of the law that you need to understand under the old covenant, and it's the civil law. These are the laws that apply to national Israel. Israel was a nation state. They had their own government. They were a theocracy, and then they were a monarchy. They had a rulership that depended on laws of the land. And so in the same way that we as American citizens have laws, you know, the Bill of Rights, we have the Constitution, we have amendments to the Constitution, these are the laws that Israel had that applied to them as a nation and as a state. They're laws that no longer apply to us because we're not the nation of Israel. Well, if you understand your theology right, we're not the nation of Israel. We haven't replaced them. And therefore, when it comes to Israel, they, they were binding to them. Sorry, I'm behind. There you go. 
uh, Israel, they were, bind, they were bound by the civil law. Christ fulfilled those laws. Uh, and in terms of that, we are free. We, are still, uh, we should still use those civil laws. This is why you still read the, the, book, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. You read those because they're valuable for us to understand God's mind and God's thinking in terms of how he interacted in these categories. So Christians find value in this. We should read it, we should appreciate it, but we should always look at these things in lieu of who Christ is and what the New Testament says. When you read the book of Proverbs, you need to understand Christ fulfilled even the Proverbs. He is the wisdom of God. When you read the Levitical law and the book of Leviticus, you need to understand Christ fulfilled this. So what part of this is applicable to me? Well, you have to do some homework on that. Last few verses in this section here. Verses 23 through 28. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Talking again about the tabernacle. But the heavenly things themselves were purified with better sacrifices than these. This is, they were purified by Christ himself. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands. We're not talking about the physical tent, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ is our mediator. He's our intercessor. Verse 25, now it was to offer himself, nor rather, um, was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Christ sacrificed himself. Um, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And 27 here, this is the verses I want to key in on. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly, uh, eagerly waiting for him. The, the verses that we just read should be somewhat familiar. Jesus offers a better sacrifice in a better place. His intercession happens in heaven with the Father. But the curious verses here that I have for you refer to kind of like an afterthought. Like Jesus uh, was appointed, rather, and just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he'll appear a second time. Afterthought, it's appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment. I think that's an important factor because, again, this whole chapter we're looking at God's holiness and the way that God deals with us in order for us to have access to him. If you are not right with God, if you don't understand that God is holy and your sin separates you, you're never going to feel like, oh man, I need to go to Christ to be saved. You're just not going to do that because you don't care. You don't think your issue before God is all that important. If you do believe that, you do understand that, then it's on, it's on us as Christians, and I'm talking to you now, Christians, it's upon us then to point number three, warn others about that judgment. To tell others, hey, you have an issue and that issue is sin. You have sin that separates you between, uh, from you to God. And if that's not resolved, it's not, if that's not dealt with, you're going to be uh, suffering an eternity in hell because God will righteously deal with that sin. Got to warn people. People have been warning me about Texas. I'm just going to tell you. And by warn, I think they're trying to scare me. Like, oh, you know, on second thought, I'm not going to go after all. I'm going to stay here in California. They've been telling me about, well, hey, do you know how, how humid it is in Texas? It gets really, it's hot out there, super humid. Oh, did you know that they have tornadoes on occasion? And like someone lost a cow because of that. And not only that, we know how big a sports fan you are, Pastor Rod. Do you know that they're like diehard sports fans? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I, I'm going to change. I'm going to grow. I, I appreciate the warning or the scare tactic, whatever it's called. Appreciate it, but I'm going in eyes open. I knew about most of these things. In fact, in preparation, because of the humidity, I've been taking hotter showers. Tornadoes, I've been putting the fan on really high to be like... <laughs> but of course, I think what they're trying to do is to make sure that when I get to Texas, the weather doesn't slap me down silly. I almost made a meme out of this for you, but I'm just going to explain my thinking on this. Some people are going to go before God and be like, hey, I'm here. And in the same way that Willie just smacked down Chris, I sense that God's going to have a similar reaction to some of us when we come to God and say, God, didn't I do all these great things for you? God's going to say, I never knew you. That's scary. And the reason that's scary is because he's talking to people that 
feel like, in some way, like, oh, I should be here. I knew, we, I, we talked about you. I had a Bible study about you. I'm, I'm good with you, right? They're surprised by this. The reason that's important is because if we don't understand in our mind how serious the issue of sin is and the consequent judgment, we're never going to approach God in the way that we should. We're going to develop God into our own minds, and we're going to find ourselves, sadly, on the other side of his anger if we don't reconcile with that, if we don't understand how grave an issue that is. What we must understand and what we must tell others is that God, God's justice demands atonement for sin. God's justice demands that something be done about this relational issue between us. In case you don't know what the word atonement means, that's kind of a, it's a Christian word. Most people don't use it today. You probably understand the word justice. But atonement, if you break it down into its constituent parts, means at-one-ment. At-one-ment. To bring two parties together, to make them where they used to be separated, they are now at one they're at one minted atonement. How does God deal with that? Well, the whole, we've been talking about it all night. God's justice demands atonement for sin, and he does that through the means of animals. In the Old Covenant, God would picture his need for justice from the sinner by giving animals. And under the Old Covenant, particularly under Exodus 12, the uh, Passover, God said you could take a lamb or a goat, a year old, and I want you to live with that lamb or that goat for four days. Your family takes home this lamb or this goat for four days, and you spend time with it. And I don't know about you, but if my girls saw a goat, a little baby lamb in the house, like it'd be over. Like I'm, I'm not going to cruise, I'm not going to kill the lamb because they're going to, oh, I love the animals, fluffy. And... But that's exactly what God does. He wants you to be intimately connected to this animal. And then he wants dad to go and... I mean, I'm not going to tell you to go home and do this to your cats. But maybe you should. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. But they do this. God commanded them to do this as a, as a means for them to realize, oh, someone has to die, something has to die in order for my sin to be dealt with, at least in some temporary way. And I mean... When they do that, then they stick a thing through the animal and they're supposed to burn it. If there's any food left over, if there's any meat left over, they're to incinerate it. It was a total sacrifice. It wasn't a partial. They ate the very animal that they cuddled with. And then whatever animal wasn't eaten, they burned it. It reminds me of the song that we sing often. There's a verse in that song that says, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Do you know that there was a denomination that asked to change those lyrics. I won't put <clears throat> that denomination out there, but they wanted to change it to this. Okay, watch closely. Till on that cross that Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They said, hey, we want to use this as our hymn, but we, we'd like to change just one part of this, this phrase. They'd like to say, instead, the love of God was magnified. Not the wrath of God was satisfied. The love of God was magnified. Isn't that better? Isn't that a kinder, kinder, gentler Jesus that we kind of want? And the Gettys and Townsend, who wrote that song, said no. Because we need to understand God's justice demands atonement for sin. And that atonement, that wrath of God, needed to be satisfied through a substitute, through someone else besides us. Whether it was an animal or in our case, that substitute, that provision for sin was Jesus Christ himself. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is the beauty of the Christian message in contradistinction to the world religions and how the Old Testament under, helps us understand this. I know this is a heady sermon, and I'm sorry that it feels probably different than what I normally preach, but I, I felt like we have to reconcile with this. We need to appreciate and understand how grave our sin is and how deep an issue it is in order for us to really appreciate the fact that God provides a substitute for sin. This is the stuff that your friends need to know. And for some of you in here, this is what you need to know about God. He hates your sin. It is grievous and evil, and it deserves to have your blood spilled on the floor in order for him to deal with it. But he doesn't. He gives you an option called a, a substitute for sin, Jesus Christ the righteous, in order for you to approach him. God's justice, uh, God's justice demands atonement for sin, but his grace provides a substitute for sin. Which in verse 28 tells us, look, He's going to appear a second time not to deal with sin. Jesus has dealt with sin once and for all. He comes back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. God's grace provides a substitute for sin. This last weekend, 
student ministers and I went to a place that you might not know about, but it's called Skid Row. 50 city blocks in L.A., population of about 5,000, 5,000 homeless people. And so they live in these encampments, and they're lined all around the city blocks. There's tents everywhere. There's people everywhere. And if you walk down this area, it can be pretty scary. Scary and, on top of that, terrifying to see. Look at all the suffering that's happening. These people that are just so—I mean, they have nothing. There was one guy laying with just a trash bag on top of himself and not wearing anything else, I'm pretty sure. There were people who were clearly strung out. The smell assaults your nose. You thought you smelled some bad things. If you go there, you're going to smell some really powerful smells that are cause a bit of a gag reflex, unless you're prepared for it. The sights themselves are, are grievous because you get to see front and center what it looks like to, to see how terrible it can be to not have money and a shelter. They all look sunburned. and I mean, the sun has gotten them because they don't really have a lot of, a lot of cover, so their skin kind of looks leathery and, and overdone. They look dirty. They smell dirty. If you look on the floor, you'll see different, I mean, you'll see trash everywhere. That's for sure. There's trash. If you're looking pretty closely, you'll find other things like fecal matter and someone's pre-digested or mostly digested food. I couldn't quite tell. You'll see needles on occasion. You'll see all sorts of things. When, when we go through the places like this, it's easy for us to feel like, man, I, I don't know what to do. Like you, you, you get this sense of what am I supposed to do about this, God? How do I, what do we do? How do we fix this issue? And I asked that to my car of guys on the way back. How do, you, how do we fix this? What do you suggest? And the, the consensus is like, we don't, well, we don't know. There's so much. There's so many problems here. We don't even know what to do. I said, that's, that's, that's true. There's a lot of issues here. But when it comes down to it, if we are thinking like Christians, there is a clear answer for all of us. Because of course, we want, we want them to know Christ, right? We want them to understand the gospel. We could see them and feel a great deal of pity, sorrow, and sadness because of their physical plight. But what you don't see is that they're not the only ones who are poor. They're not the only ones who are in poverty. All around us are people who are in spiritual poverty. Granted, it doesn't look the same. They don't smell as bad. In fact, they look really nice. They're cleaned up. They have great big houses. They have uh, kids and families and they have degrees and all sorts of great things. But their poverty is, dare I say, worse if their spiritual poverty has no connection to Christ. We see poor people, we feel bad. We should. We should beg God to help us do something about that. But make no mistake, they're not the only ones who are poor and impoverished. Scripture makes it clear that there's everyone who doesn't know Christ. They are spiritually poor and impoverished. You and I have something that we can do about that. And it's called sharing the gospel. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us God hates our sin, and yet he provided a substitute for sin. And that substitute was better than anything else any priest had offered before, because that substitute was Jesus Christ. He offered himself and not a goat. Offered himself and not a lamb. Let's do what we can this week to make that message known and bring great glory to Jesus Christ. Because as you know, Jesus is better. Let's pray. Thank you.